The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. Episode 42. Why is that important? It's only 10 away from 52. Well done, Neil. You can count, well, which we'll come to actually during the um, during the show because there's something important we want to say about episode 52. It's the last. No, it's not. No, it's not what we were going to say. But uh, I did want to draw your attention to something very, very important. And this is something that uh, Gemma said to me during the ex-weddings conference. Um, I can't remember why we got on the subject, but I wanted to ask if this was true or not. OK, is it true, Mullins? That you have... Where's this going? <laughs> in, in your, on your YouTube channel, in your YouTube films, that you have worn makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you weren't quite expecting that question, particularly right at the start of the show. And, 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 in a, and, and, and really on a show where we should be being far more charitable, because it is the first week of December, you know, we're, we're on the Christmas run. Here. It's all right to have three wives, right? People, people get... People, people go higher than that. Oh, careful, careful. People go higher than careful. three. Uh, I have done yes yeah, in the past because I, uh, I I like is, well um, yes basically is the answer, <laughs> but not very often. And usually it's when I have to. Sometimes I have to like I get up at really early these days, like four really four, four thirty in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you uh, go to the office early? You do because yeah. often I I come down to my office. It's a, it's a dance site closer than your, yours is to your your place. Yeah, and, I, and I you're you're on email before I am. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it, yeah. it depends what's going on, but but generally. So, uh, but the most important thing, the point of that is that I was um, I, I try and do the filming part of my filming disclaimer disclaimer first thing in the morning and uh, I remember once waking up and uh, Gemma said you can't possibly <laughs> possibly look like that yeah. on the telly yeah. or on the internet so she um, yeah she slapped some a little bit of uh, makeup on whatever they call it I don't know confounder is it and Conf- <laughs> confounder confounder stuff concealer know. oh yeah that's it and, the confounder um, and uh, oh. yeah, I need that now with my black yeah. eye that's still here. Yeah. Um, so yes, I have, and I, I'm proud. I'm proud. <laughs> yes, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm, I'm a man so- that's proud yeah, well, to do have worn makeup on the internet. In my past, I have I've been on, on telly. And I've I've uh, worn makeup applied by a proper makeup artist, not just Mullin's hand. <laughs> so uh, I've I've been there as well, you know. The Fuji cast. Right. Um, so uh, lots of revelations, obviously today. Oh, and by the way, we're only a couple of weeks away from from the big day itself, and um, we have got a very special episode coming up on the the week that lead right, leads right up to the twenty fifth. It's going to be our very own nativity play. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's, there's been a little bit of hilarity in planning this, so I, I want you to mark that in your diary that as it gets towards Christmas, you don't have this kind of like, oh, well, we, we'll give the podcast a miss a couple of weeks because I'm too busy Christmas shopping. You will not want to miss this particular episode. Right. Um, so uh, welcome to the Fuji cast. The show thrives and, and falls to its knees in gratitude for your questions. So we, we've got some cracking questions this week. Um, in, including, I'm afraid, actually, there's quite a serious subject, really. One, one of the questions this week is about what, what happens when kit is stolen. Mm. So uh, that that's one. Send your questions in, please, to click at fujicast.co.uk. Uh, today we'll hear from the sharp end of photojournalism. He's been a guest on the Breathe Pictures podcast, latest episode, and today we're, we're going to take an excerpt about what it's like to, to work on the kind of photojournalist missions that you can certainly describe as humanitarian commissions to. Um, so, so there we go. A, a passing mention of the private Facebook group, and I've been terrible. We normally, we normally sort of gra- grab a Facebook um, post here, but um, it's not on the screen for some reason. So, just make sure you go there and join it. Right, let's crack straight on with the questions because we had quite a, quite a long start with Kev's revelations about makeup. <laughs> 
Go on, you can go first. Hang on, I'm still putting my tights on. Hang on. Yeah, right. Oh. Well, it's panto season. Uh, there we go. You right. can wear you can wear tights panto season. Right. Americans okay. don't actually know much about panto, do they? So if you if <laughs> oh, you that's if true, yeah. you're across the pond, you'd be thinking, what on earth are they talking about? Yeah. It's a show where um, any practically anything goes. The women are men. The men are women. Um, there's, the, don't, there's there's horses which have four legs that are right. made of people. Yeah. What else happens? You might think, what does Britain go? It's the- behind you. Yes. Oh no, you don't. You might be you might be thinking, does Britain go to the pub for a month? Well, practically, yes, it does. Actually, right, I think yeah. we should carry. It, otherwise, we're going to lose listeners. Right, Jason Angelini. Uh, greetings from across the pond. Oh, okay. um, I wanted to know what a panto is. <laughs> no, 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 that's well, what he funny said. You should ask. I wanted to recommend a great documentary on Amazon Prime mm. entitled "Get the Picture." Now, I just read this, and I have not watched this, so I, this sounds very good. Um, so, Amazon Prime, and uh, we are now trying to put more content on the um, uh, the website, yep. so you'll see all of this detail below the um, the episode. The award-winning documentary recounts the remarkable life of John G. Morris, the revered Life magazine photojournalist who was involved in the D-Day Normandy landings. Uh, Get the Picture provides a distinct insight into the power of one man's passion for photography. Yeah. So that's good. Get the uh, Get the Picture from Amazon Prime. Okay. Um, however, uh, we'll probably find out it's not available in the UK, So, um, but, but we'll look for it. On a different note, I'm curious uh, if you have experienced any downturns in inquiries in oh. recent years. Do, do, do. Mm. Okay. So he goes on to say, I hope I have been at this full-time professionally for 16 years now. And at one time, we were shooting about 60 to 70 weddings a year, um, which wasn't bad at all. Uh, relying on client referrals and venues with no sign of slowing down. No. Dot, 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 until it did. Oh, I love weddings and would love to get back to a higher number, maybe 30 or so a year, but I'm at a loss. Curious if you have taken any other approaches or have any grand ideas or reasons why this is happening. Um, we have taken on other areas of photography, families and real estate, but have a great love of weddings and hope to gain more traction in that area again. Great podcast as always. I look forward to listening to your conversations and interviews every week. Mm. Jason well, Angelini. You, Jason. Downturns. Well... We we mentioned this at the the ex weddings conference a good couple of weeks ago, and I think it was actually Jason's email that uh, that sparked me mentioning it during the Q and A. That uh, it's it's not just I don't want to mention the B word, but I, a lot of people have been thinking it was the B word. Um, don't drop the B word, but clearly it's not. Maybe it's 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 global patterns in in how people are changing the way that they hire wedding photographers and whether they believe it's you actually have a very good theory about this well i think firstly we have to be brutally honest and i'm not one for you know i hate you know i I, hopefully everybody is successful and carries on to be successful and everything but i hate all of the the fake success you know my business is great i've got shooting 120 weddings a year um and actually and then you find out that they're they're shooting it for 300 quid yeah exactly um so you know brutal fact is that yes inquiries for me certainly and i believe for you also are they are down right down yep um no we're nothing if not honest on this show absolutely so um yeah send your checks to us neil and kevin so yeah i mean honestly i don't think it's a u.s thing and a, and a uk thing are the, the many of the people i've spoke to in the industry are are feeling it a little bit yeah. i um the b word perhaps um brexit maybe is having an impact certainly for people who work for european companies maybe they're thinking you know they may have been told by their european employers that actually we don't know until it happens what happens so maybe that's going on but i think generally i think it's a generational thing 
personally. Yeah, this is your theory, isn't it? Yeah, I think the people that are getting married now, typically the people that are getting married now have grown up with uh, technology. They've grown up with Instagram. They've grown up with the ease of access to software, to um, cameras and the cheapness of cameras. And they almost certainly know somebody who is a perhaps a full-time photographer, a part-time photographer, a very good photographer, yeah. some somebody who's, you know, who's got all of the gear because the gear is now very cheap. And, and you know, all the cameras do a million things at once. Um, so I, I personally think that's having an impact on it. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're going to struggle and all that kind of stuff. But I think that the demographic, if you like, of the people getting married these days is changing, has changed generally. And I I'm doing a lot, think a lot more, a more mature weddings. That's for sure. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I always have, you know, it was always rare for me to shoot like a 22 year old something. Was wedding. it? Yeah, because they... They typically aren't attracted to my style of photography. I thought you were going to say they're typically not attracted to a Mullins. With a black eye wandering around <laughs> the black wedding. eye wandering yeah. around the wedding. Um, I got it from Judo, honest. Honest, yeah, <laughs> honest, Gov. So, um, yeah, I mean, I typically my, my kind of um, typical client has often been second marriage, um, a bit older and stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and that's that's just the way it, uh, kind of the aesthetics of my pictures, I suppose, go go towards those. But it's um, I, I honestly think it's a, it's it's something to do with that. I think it's, you know, the Instagram world we live in and yeah. the filters and, and the the, the, the fake happiness of the internet and, and all of that kind of stuff is, um, I'm not saying the internet is, is like fake happiness, but you know, the, the, <laughs> the ever evolving, uh, look at my world. It's so good kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. and, uh, I think that, yeah, I, that's what I think. That's, that's genuinely what I think. Also, you know, the venues are struggling, the laws are changing. So in, you know, well, within, in the UK, within, yeah. Yeah. within a while, you'll be able to get married anywhere. So the venues are struggling and, and to counter that, the venues are, um, you know, encouraging or some venues certainly um are encouraging them to the clients to save money by you know you don't need a photographer everybody brings mobile phones these days and that's happening i i know that's happening because i've spoke to people so the the laws are changing everything's changing and uh, it's which means that you have to change too simple as that i also think stylistically there are things that you can you can change within your business perhaps yeah if you haven't thought about uh, turning on that video button, you might be thinking, oh, no, please, no, I don't want to be a videographer. I'm not talking about um, do, doing wedding videos or wedding photography, although I, I have now um, entered that, that realm because I believe that's going to support the wedding side of my business. And, and actually filming is something I, I genuinely enjoy anyway. Hmm. What about hybrid? Um, offering something that um, you know, that the, the friend Dave can't do because that's the issue. I think sometimes a friendly Dave will turn up and uh, he'll say, oh, "I'll do your pictures, no worries at all." Then then he'll get absolutely plastered later on, and you'll miss lots of it for sure. I know that's a age old argument, but equally, Dave um, is probably not going to turn on the video button and now how to grade a piece of video and and record some sound from the speeches where Dad's making this gorgeous yeah. speech about his um, his daughter. I mean, that I think if you start to adapt your business and realise we live in a multi um, certainly a multifaceted world when it comes to to, to how people now consume um, uh, pictures, mm-hmm. because you know you only go on the London Underground, mm. and all those all those uh, billboards, that you, you know the the vertical billboards are, that are now moving. electronic and and moving images. Yeah, yeah, so. but but the thing that was like six hundred years ago, they had that at Harry Potter. That was that's, <laughs> that's like, oh, that's old that's tech. nothing new. Yeah, yeah, and the moving stairways. Mm-hmm. The, the, the underground copied everything off Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you come to London, by the way, this is for our American uh, friends. Now the staircases in some of the undergrounds do actually move. Do they? Yeah. 
What, not like just normal escalators? No. Shh, no. Oh, I've not seen that before. Right, Terrell Woods from Malibu. Um, we're starting with a lot of our American friends this week. And we did mention you last week, Terrell, so I thought we should start off straight away with yours. Um, thank you guys for a wonderful podcast. I've been a cannon shooter for the last six or seven years when I decided to play around with the emerging mirrorless stuff. First of all, the MFT kits, Panasonic, Olympus, all very nice, but low-light struggles. Then to the APS-C kits, I really wanted Canon to shine. In fact, their M50, very nice camera. Uh, but everyone told me, try Fuji. So other than Canon, to me, the these feel the best in hand. X-T3, X-T3, X-T2, sorry, X-T3, and X-H1. But holy baloney, Batman, was there a learning curve, and frustratingly so. I shoot sports, and I just kept saying to anybody who'd listen, this stuff just isn't going to cut it. So wrong. Listening to your podcast and contacting actual Fuji sports shooters, the work has been spot on and a joy to use. You've not used Fuji for any sport because you, you, you I, do, uh, have you? I have, yeah. So originally, when I used to you used the, to shoot a lot with your Canon, didn't when, you? When I did the rugby, I shot yeah. with my Canons. I mean, that what that has been. Well, I think the last time I did it was nine years ago or something, maybe even ten. But but yeah, so I did that. And um, but uh, every at least twice a year, I do some work for the Great Run Company. Oh yes, you do. Um, yeah, yeah. So the Bristol Half Marathon, the Bristol 10K, all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, so I shoot all of that. And uh, t- uh, technically, my role there is the kind of behind the scenes storytelling, mm. the emotion, the tears, the the people being sick, all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> but but it also involves me capturing the you know the people tearing over the uh, the finish line. Mm. So rather than just the portrait, all of the they have the uh, re- they have the official kind of Runners World magazine photographers there and who do a great job. But my 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 when they're crossing the line, I'm looking for that instant that they are, you know, that that kind of moment of, of belief that they've done it. So, so I use that, the so you, system. you may not be using what Terrell is using then, because he's using a 100 to 400, 50 to, 150, uh, 50 to 140, sorry. That's why. And then the, the 1024 for video. Oh, you've got a 50 to 140. 50 to 140. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that's I why apologize. I yeah. uh, But he says, which two primes would you recommend? Um, I borrowed the, the 56, nice, but I'm still waiting for it to focus, a bit like the old Canon 85 1.2. So I guess he's looking for the, the longer end uh, range. Don't, don't use 56 a 56 for sport. No, no, it's not for sport. No. No, it's a brilliant lens, mm. um, but not for sport. But um, I wonder if he's using the APD version, which is even you know a little bit more sluggish, isn't it? Possibly, but it's <laughs> it's not a sports, no, sports. Any primes that you would suggest? No, I would just use zooms. Would you? Honestly, for sport stuff, yeah, because um, you don't need that that extra depth of field, you know, necessarily. You know, most mostly, you know, you, they want a little bit of storytelling depth behind it, so mm-hmm. you don't really be, need to be going more than two point eight. The zoom's going to give you everything you need in terms of capacity to move around uh, the frame, at least. Uh, why do you need to worry about uh, flipping lenses and things yeah. like that? I, honestly, when I do my my running stuff, I do I use the um, ten twenty four and the fifty to one forty. That's it. Hundred to four hundred. Have you used? That I one? don't have that lens. No, no. I think would isn't that, that the four, f four to f five point six? I think it is. Yeah. Um, no, I mean I would go for the fast primes, but fifty one forty. Well, yeah. Although there is the two hundred mil, which is the f two point eight prime, I think, or f two prime even maybe. Yeah. It's huge and it's white. Yeah. And it's very very it's expensive. Very expensive. Yeah. But if you're serious about it, and if you don't mind selling your children and 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 everything else that goes with it, that's what the that's yeah. what the serious sports photographers will be using. The yeah. ones that are you shooting Fujifilm for sure. Do you use, uh, do you see any um, Fujifilm shooters at, at Stadia these days? Have you have you seen a few? I've seen a couple of those 
it's um, you, they're very easy to tell because they've got the green rim around the edges. Yeah. Um, I have seen a couple when I've been watching some sports recently. Um, not not a huge amount. I mean, it's still yeah. predominantly Nikon and Canon. I go to uh, a Red, Reading FC occasionally because that's our our biggest local football club, and you really do have to sell the the family Sylvie if you want to go into London to watch watch football these days. But um, I always look. I do always look. I, I think. Mm. I wonder if I see a Fuji shooter down there. Well, interestingly, I'm actually accredited to the Welsh Rugby Union as a photographer. So um, I've just never had the – on the times that I have applied for – I'm basically pre-accredited, but you still have to apply for each game. Um, and then they've never kind of had space, so no. um, I haven't I haven't applied for a long time. But maybe I'll think about it yeah. again. I'd love to do it. Right, your your question. Quite an interesting question from uh, Leon Lewis, and uh, not he- the pop star, <laughs> Leon. <sighs> Leon, I think. No, Leona Lewis. Leona Lewis. Oh, sorry. Leona yeah. Lewis. Sorry. I have a story Is about her. Is she in the hit parade? Is she? During the war. Is she in the hit parade? <laughs> um, I've started listening to the podcast four weeks ago and loving it. Oh, I have been listening you. from the start of the day at 5.30am while I walk to work to lose weight. <laughs> That's a great concept. Well done. Um, this might have been answered in future episodes. Or previous ones, do you mean? No, because he's only four weeks in. Oh, I see. Yeah, that confused me as well. Ah, this is all a bit time travel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to rephrase it slightly. This may already have been answered, or maybe you answered it in an episode I haven't listened to yet. It's due to come. (laughs) But when your kids get married, who would you love to come and take their pictures (laughs) as you will both be on other duties and you can't pick each other? But then you might not want to, he says. (laughs) (laughs) Would you pick a wedding photographer or would you pick a photographer that you particularly admire? Well, this this did cross my mind. It, did it, if this was a, um, like, no barriers type thing, mm. um, would you go really left field? Or, you know, let, let's let's assume, right? Is it cloud cuckoo land choices? No, no I'm, I'm, I'm going to be rein it in. Re- reasonably realistic. I'm going to rein it in. Let's assume that the year is uh, 20... <laughs> what is it now? 2020 nearly. Yeah. So yeah, let's assume the year is 2032 and right. Jack and Rosa are marrying each other. <laughs> All right, I thought... For, <laughs> okay. All right. And uh, now Rosa listens to this in the back of the car. She's going to be does absolutely he? mortified. Oh, and probably Jack Rosa. also. Um, and you and I... Jack does listen sometimes. You and I... When he's not li- watching PewDiePie videos. Have to... Uh, we have to chip in right. to pay for the photographer. Yeah, £5.50. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but we... God, how much will wedding photography cost? That <laughs> £5,000. Oh, will there be wedding photography then? Oh, that's true. Mm. But, okay, so let's assume that we, we have to go with um, something that's within, like our basically our time type of package price. So um, because you dropped me in it with the makeup, I'm going to ask you to pick the <laughs> photographer for the wedding. Oh, you're not going to answer this question? <laughs> no, no, because we're sharing it, so you can pick. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for the wine. Okay, <laughs> and the beer. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, well now, well now, well now. If it was a wedding photographer, I'm going to choose between two people. Is that allowed? Or maybe they could both come. Well, we got loads of budget. This is already getting very complicated. It's not back a bit of the wine budget. Uh, no, no, no. I'm buying the wine. All right. Well, I thought you might be able to chip in. This is where the arguments no are going way. to start, isn't it? No way. <laughs> I already told Rosa that Jack's dad was bad. <laughs> Alistair Freeman would obviously be on my list because, and, I, and there's a very good reason for that, because we, we're all in a collective mm-hmm. and uh, it makes perfect sense to me that I would want somebody that uh, we trust enough to 
you know, pass business back and forth mm-hmm. between each other. He'd definitely be um he'd definitely be in there if, if we could afford him. Yep. Um think we can afford him? Yeah. We <laughs> And uh, there is a, there is another another. I like Paul Rogers. I like his work mm-hmm. uh, an awful lot. Um, mm-hmm. So, but if I was going a bit left field, I'd, I'd, I'd possibly choose my friend Giles to to come and do a bit of documentary work. Ooh, no, Giles has done weddings before, hasn't he? He has, yeah. 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 And yeah. he does listen to this podcast. So I'm going to be very very careful now. But he doesn't necessarily enjoy them quite as much as he used to. <laughs> I remember a very drunken conversation with him in London one night, <laughs> and I think. Um, Pretty much, it was uh, fill the gaps between the F words. <laughs> yeah, I can almost hear Charles. Will, will you shoot Jack and Rose's wedding? What the? Yeah, I think that'll be the reaction. <laughs> Might yeah, have to stick with Alistair and Paul. That'd be cool, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with you totally there. Um, although I suppose it does come down. You know, we're we're making that. You know, we're doing we're doing what what proper dads do we're deciding on behalf of our kids yeah. actually they may want something a very uh, much more um formal so let's just assume they're going for a traditional wedding photographer right i'd go i think i'd uh i'd i'd drag sanjay out of his luxury oh, sanjay. luxury pad sanjay. in london oh sanjay i can't believe i forgot that he, yes he could come up in his maserati i wouldn't be able to afford him by then he'd, no. he'd be just but he'd no. do it for mates rates wouldn't he well, yeah, yeah, but mates' rates would be at least ten grand. Yes, so I think Sanjay for the fish uh, for the yeah. more, oh, more cinematic, beautiful. Yeah, although he does do very good documentary stuff as well too. He does, yeah, yeah. Uh, T's and C's apply. So we got three photographers now. This is going to cost an absolute fortune. Yeah, how much well, money you're paying? You th- you're paying for the photographers. I said that. <laughs> I'm doing the wine. Hang on a minute. I'm getting it from Aldi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then that case, then I'm definitely not paying for the entire photography. <laughs> that doesn't seem fair to me. Oh, I'm not coming then. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Wedding over. Yeah. Is it my question or yours? Yours. All right. Um, what have we got here on the clock? Uh, I'll try and choose a shorty. Here we go. Matt Latham. Thank you for the podcast. It keeps me sane on a Monday morning, does it? Photography and videography is a hobby of mine, which landed me being asked to film a wedding I was attending. Um, uh, sorry, there's two wedding questions here, but uh, I, I, you know, it's, not, it's not supposed to be about weddings entirely. In fact, it's very much not about weddings in about five minutes' time. As this is a hobby, I did it for free, and the newly married couple loved what I produced for them, which got me thinking, I'd like to maybe start testing the water to do this professionally. Using, <laughs> You probably are not listening to the right episode when we started <laughs> off with the state of the wedding industry. You need to wear makeup <laughs> and you need to, you need to be prepared. <laughs> Using the X-T3, filming in 4K 10-bit, 200 megabit file, there's a lot of large files. So here's the question. And I suppose actually this does work for, for any kind of photography as files, si- file sizes are getting larger uh, continually. How, how long do you both keep the client photos on your systems? Chaps? Do you both keep all your photos indefinitely or do you delete them eventually after a certain period of time? And I guess the same really would go for video. So um, yeah, how long do you keep the, the raw materials, whether that's JPEG or raw files or these huge, lovely, big mm. um, movie files that you can now um, turn out of your X-T3s? So I actually spent a whole day, a couple of weeks back, reorganising all my drives and my my archiving system and everything like that. And I think I've got a good system now. But essentially, to get straight to the point there, Mm. I keep the memory cards are not used until the wedding is edited and delivered. Mm. So first of all, the memory cards from the shoot sit in a little cupboard and uh, they just sit there until until that wedding. You must have a stack of those then. Do quite a few, yeah. yeah. The actual raw files, obviously, when I get back to the studio, I'll put on two different drives. 
And uh, also what I do at that point is I will, if I haven't shot JPEGs, but I will use Photo Mechanic to kick out loads of JPEGs from the raw files and I just dump those as a zip file into okay. Dropbox. So I'm covered backup-wise. And then um, and then those, though, once the wedding is edited, uh, the, the files that I've kept, the raw files that have made the cut, yeah. Once everything is done and dusted, albums delivered, all that kind of stuff, that all gets zipped up as one big collection. So the raw files that were kept, the Lightroom catalog, any albums, any photo films, all that kind of stuff, zipped up into one thing, stuck on a drive and archived. Um, the so all- you keep every single raw file you've ever shot? No. Oh. Only the ones that were edited. Oh, so the okay. ones that didn't make the cut, right? They're gone. They yeah, but they get they get gotted. <laughs> they, they get what? They get gotted. Gotted. They get got. Um, they get gotted after uh, at the end of the year. So right. they still sit on that drive until so the for, end. For a year, they'll be there, and then they're gone. The the end of the following year. The end of the following. This is year. my new system. Yeah. So for example, wedding that I'm going to shoot tomorrow mm-hmm. is uh, that I'll keep those raw files until the end of 2020. Right. Okay. And then they're gone. Why? Wow, that's a lot longer than I keep them for. Mm. Although actually, since I've been uh, using Google Drive, mm. um, then I I have to say I've not had a purge for a long, long time. So all those raw files are still up there actually. For you put your raw, raw files in the cloud. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, how long does that take to upload? Not long. I, I use a. I've got a pretty. I mean, Virgin. Um, here's here's an advert. Ding, do, 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 do. Virgin um, is, is what I use, and it's super super quick. So, do you have unlimited storage of Google Cloud? Mm. Wow, I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah, you can. How much I've, does that I've got cost? Commercial. I think I pay about uh, well because of the various businesses and things I I have and and the different accounts I have. I don't. I, I pay about sixty five quid a month. Wow. I don't, you know, you might think, what? But actually, um, I see that as fuel. The fuel in my car is a, is, is a Well, I think that's I, very I reasonable use. for yeah. if you've got, if you can get all your raw files and stuff up there. Yeah. I mean, I use Dropbox for absolutely everything apart from raw files. Right. So my entire business is in my Dropbox. Yeah, I couldn't do it with, it with the Dropbox. It's hugely expensive for the same sort of thing. I yeah. Think. No, no, yeah. absolutely. I, I do the, um, I think I've got the three terabyte plan. So yeah, that, I've that's got a, I've perfectly got, enough for me. Yeah, I've got a business suite account. Yeah. And I'm prepared to pay bit more handsomely for that okay but i mean i i, I don't know if, is there a fair usage policy i don't think there is um i've certainly you know i i don't i mean i'm not taking liberties no 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 well i didn't know they did that that's good i'm going to look into that i shall link to the google business suite in my new uh section underneath all of the, so episodes the, way, on the there was podcast. a google advert and a virgin advert and nobody got paid a bean for it hey eh? honestly we should be raking it in but we just aren't Anyway, um, we'll, we'll return to your questions in a little while. I'm going to try and try and tone it right down. Sometimes mm. when we go into the interviews, we have to tone it right back. Yeah. This um, this is the second part, really, of uh, of I suppose your introduction to an extraordinary photographer who I feel um, really privileged to have met on a couple of occasions. I worked in the Gambia uh, last year on some political documentaries. Uh, Jason Florio, and I know before you heard. The 9-11 story. Do you remember the 9-11 story yeah. that he told the day that the towers, yeah. towers fell? And he was uh, he was in the city and he, and he recorded that story photographically that day. And really, for today's interview to make sense, I should furnish you with a little backstory and African history, perhaps. So during my time with him when we met up, he shared more stories beyond the Twin Towers, extended stories about his photographic work in Africa. And in particular, we chatted for a quarter of an hour or so about his work with MOAS, short for Migrant Offshore Aid Station. Now, to quote from their website, 
Their mission, no one should have to risk their life to reach safety. That's why MOAS provides aid and assistance to the world's most vulnerable migrant communities. Now, Jason is based between Malta, the Gambia and the UK. And in 2015 and 16, when this story is most pertinent, most of his time was being spent in the Gambia, which at that time was under an oppressive dictatorial regime led by a leader who had simply stripped the country of his assets and ruled with a firm cruelty. Those who resisted were locked up and many simply just disappeared. But at that time, there were many other Gambians disappearing, many young Gambians fleeing the country, not because they'd been taken in by state security, but because they were taking what's referred to as the back way to the Libyan coast, a two and a half thousand mile journey to buy space aboard overcrowded, dangerous seagoing vessels to make a perilous journey across the sea to Italy and other countries in Europe. And even if they managed to get anywhere near a boat at the other end, some were being taken by shameless smugglers who'd refused to let them board unless families back home paid some kind of voyage ransom. You could get that far only to find you had no more money to pay any form of ransom and end up being enslaved, a trade which uh, I'm sure in this century you'd felt had all but been wiped out. I also feel sure that thousands of tourists passing through the Gambia to go take their place on sun lounges at four- and five-star luxury hotels had no idea that just yards outside their gates and compounds, this small West African country was a source location for many trying to escape poverty and heartless leadership. So today's interview is not so much about photography, but what happens when a photographer finds, as he describes it, his two worlds colliding. It's a human story about a humanitarian photographer. It's about a British Gambian-based photographer who finds himself on a boat in the middle of the Med, photographing and trying to help bring awareness to a, a growing migration issue and the cruelty of sending people across the sea in small boats, underfueled, ill-equipped to sail, with sometimes hundreds of migrants, many actually not able to actually swim. Jason Florio was about to find out that those he was photographing and those he sometimes helped physically to pull from the clutches of a cold Mediterranean and a GNC were people he actually knew. Yeah, it was. I was living in Gambia in... 20, I left New York and I was living in Gambia between 2013 and 2015, working from here, doing assignments around not just West Africa, but, but further afield. Um, and I got a call one day from a, a friend of mine, actually, I was in Mogadishu with, and he said, like, I'm working for this NGO that's based out of Malta, first private rescue ship that's going to be working in the Mediterranean, mainly off the coast of Libya. Can you come and you want to spend a few weeks? We'll, we'll pay you to, to shoot some pictures for us. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think the biggest amount of time I'd spent on a boat was probably taking the cross channel ferry, I think. So the idea of being on a boat for three weeks was quite intimidating. Um, but anyway, it was, it was, an, it, I, I got on this boat and we, you know, headed down to Libya from Malta. And literally the first day we, we did a rescue and I, I met a girl, a Gambian girl, who was from Barra, which is at the, uh, sorry, from Basse, who is at the far end of the country. And I remember it was a, a late night rescue. It was the first night rescue I'd been on. It was the first day I was there, so it was the first night rescue I'd been on. Very, very dangerous rescue. And um, these women were covered in fuel and completely exhausted. And we had to transfer them to a big container ship we couldn't get them onto our boat because we, we were already filled with a previous boat of, uh, of migrants and refugees 
she, she had this immense climb up this um, pilot's ladder. And before I went, I said, give me your name, give me your phone number. And I just held the camera up in the, the half darkness. And, um, and I was suddenly I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is like these are I could know her family. Um, and so Africa suddenly was on my I was in the middle of the sea, but I was meeting you know, my I don't say fellow Gambians, but you know, people I was very, very close to. Um, over the over the following weeks, I met more and more Gambians. You know, Gambia, it's you know it's the smallest mainland country in in Africa, smallest country in the mainland of Africa. Um, but it was per capita one of the the biggest uh, source countries for for, for migrants. And um, it was it was sort of starting to get surreal. You know, as I was meeting people, I was chatting about, oh yeah, Brick Army, you know that cafe, you know this place, that place. And uh, I think it was about the third rescue. There was a, a young boy I got talking to, and within a very short period of time, I realised I knew his dad, who worked for my friend Lawrence, who's who'd set up this lodge that brought me to the Gambia in the very first place. And uh, and I'd photographed his dad as part of my portrait series with these eight by ten camera and uh, and I was like I just couldn't believe it you know I, I didn't it was one thing sort of talking about places but then actually meeting people you were one degree of separation from and then it happened multiple times I, the the nephew of my Gambian doctor was on the boat one time um, and uh, the, the very last one was was sort of quite extraordinary we, we had uh, two rescue boats out at, at one point and we knew this was probably going to be our very last mission there was a, a lot of reasons why the, the organization wasn't going to be able to continue so it was sort of it was quite sort of sad for all of us you know we'd all got you know i'd been out there for about 18 months backwards and forwards and I, i'd got really emotionally attached to all the you know the crew members and what we were doing you know whether people believed in you should be saving migrants at sea, or you know were we a ferry service, were we aiding and abetting the uh, the smugglers, etc. It didn't really matter. There was this intense meeting of, of humanity, this sort of sense of extraordinary moment when when people are in in such a distressed situation, and and you can be there to you know to be, to help them. I mean, I'm there to document it, but I felt it was also my job to try and kind of ease that passage i can speak a bit of mandinka the local one of the local languages and and they really love that that this oh wow it's like you know us you know who we are you know where we're coming from so that was was quite special so i know cut a long story short this whole group of gambians were on one of the rescue boats and we were told we were going to transfer them to our boat and for some reason i just got talking to this one one gambian boy i don't know why i picked him out the whole crowd and um and I just asked him which village he was from. And he said, oh, I'm from Kudang, which is a, a village quite a way up country. And I said, oh, do you know Sambel Kunda, which is even tiny, a tinier village where a friend of mine has, a, has a, uh, a, an organization to train vets. And um, he said, well, do you know Langbarba Sise? And I said, Langbarba Sise works for Gambia Horse and Donkey Trust. And he said, yeah, that's my dad. I'm like, I see your dad about three or four times a week when I'm here in the Gambia because he comes to our house all the time and I, I couldn't believe it I mean it was just shocking I mean literally suddenly he got whisked off to be put on our boat and and then I sort of caught up with him on, on our boat and I was about to spend you know the next sort of 48 hours chatting with him on and off and I was able to call his dad from the ship to let him know that his son was fine and we were both in tears you know it was just whose idea was it to actually place you on the boats rather than rather than watching it from your rescue boat you started putting yourself amongst the 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 rescuees i think about two two weeks into 
my first mission, I was realized I was starting to, you know, the pictures were starting to feel a little repetitive, um, which sounds ridiculous. You know, you've got this sort of <laughs> insane situations that are happening, but it, it did after a while feel a little repetitive because I was often from the position of, of working from what we call the rib, which are this sort of, um, it's about a five meter, six meter um, dinghy, which we would use as a, as a way to ferry the migrants between their boats and the rescue ship because it was too dangerous to bring the migrant boats right next to our boat as people would panic. It has to be done in a, in a very sort of organized way. And I remember stepping down onto the rib going, okay, I'm going to kind of end up kind of with the same pictures. And uh, Chris Catrambone, who's the, the founder of the organization, he said, I'm going to put you on that boat. And we had a it was one of the biggest boats that we had in that, in that, uh, in that two-week period. It had about 600 people on it a huge old fishing boat and the thing was packed so we sort of pull up and there were some Syrian guys on the back and one of them could speak English and, and Chris said I'm, I'm putting my guy on that boat make sure he's safe so I sort of went okay I'll jump up there I'll take a few pictures the rib will go around once and I'll get back off well Chris is he didn't tell me but he wanted me to sort of remain on the boat um and you know just count get a number of how many people were on there um etc and also to to help me get get a you know another perspective on the, on the situation and i'd been dreaming about the idea of getting on the boats but didn't think i didn't really want to push it the boats are, can be can really unstable many of them would tip over it's very very dangerous um but once i got on the boat um then i could start talking to people i realized that you know, not just the hundreds of people on the deck, the hold itself was completely and utterly jam-packed. You couldn't squeeze another human being down there. There was this dark hold, fetid air, fumes coming up. Obviously, the smell of human beings had been down there for a long time. But from that point on, I was pushing every time to get on the boat. I said, OK, next one, I want to get under the deck. Did it ever occur to you that, that some of the smugglers would, would be aboard these boats as well perhaps we'd sort of got enough intelligence that probably there wouldn't be smugglers on there um because there wouldn't really be any reason for them to be there as such unless they themselves were trying to get to europe and probably they were all making way too much money to to want to give that up so i mean there were fears that you know the you know were, were there you know nefarious elements on there you know could there have been you know kind of people escaping the the war in in libya you know there are isis or al-qaeda or who else whoever else was maybe trying to sneak out of there that those were sort of definite considerations but most of the time i realized that just human beings trying to you know escape very bad situations um you know whether it's you know there are there economic migrants uh you know whether they're coming out of places like somalia or, or south sudan um you know they were just regular people in a really really bad situation and and the crew realized putting me on the boat as well was actually kind of beneficial because not only was i remaining in radio contact so i could sort of pick out if there was any particularly bad medical cases that people need to be evacuated more quickly than the other people so my job went not just from being a photographer and a documentarian but also to be sort of a liaison as such and try and um you know be more 
fitting with the crew at first when I was on the ship the crew were great with me but I was still just I was an outsider I was you know the guy that got in the way all the time (laughs) that's fascinating because uh, that leads straight into a question I was going to ask you which I think you've answered now I I interviewed for the podcast um, a photographer called Cameron Neville in Australia who is a uh, firefighting photojournalist or we're not quite sure actually whether he's a photojournalist that fights fires or a firefighter that uh, there's a photojournalist because the, 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 it's become the two areas have fused really um, I was watching um, the film Fishers of Men and I was watching children coming off uh, or out of the sea who were the same age as my children uh, and I was wondering how, how you react to that whether you're able to stand back with your camera or whether you feel you should get involved and be part of the rescue team yeah, I was, I was very kind of aware that what I was doing was, you know, it was definitely important because it, it, you, the organization needs to have the pictures and the imagery to be able to keep funding themselves. You know, people need to see the realities of what's happening out there. Um, but there were points when I did have to put the camera down because it was about uh, pitching in. And we had a very... I think the worst incident I was ever involved in was actually when we'd, we'd moved one of the ships to um, to the Aegean Sea. So we were working between uh, Turkey and Greece. Normally, the rescues were happening at night. Um, the channel of water between Turkey and this small island of Agathonisi was was um, could be really turbulent. I mean, the wind would change, and um, a lot of these migrants, mainly Syrians. Um, and Yazidis were uh, you were know, really caught unawares, and uh, we we had a situation one night which was actually it was, a, it was one of those strange calm nights, very dark night, and the boat had been spotted on the radar moving very very fast. We figured it's probably a smuggler boat. In those in that section, the the smugglers were on the boats in, in a number of cases, but they didn't want to lose the boat, so they would pack it with. X number of people, they would go at high speed and drop them on this very small island, turn the boat and go back to Turkey okay. undetected. So we figured, okay, that's what's going to happen. We'd witnessed that before. We'd seen it with the night vision, um, people getting dropped, migrants go up onto the rocks, and then a team from uh, Medicine Sans Frontieres, who's based on the island, would, would collect them. With this incident, the, the mark on the radar, the boat was going very fast, and it, it stopped really abruptly, not too far from, from the rocks. So we got in our, um, it's called a, uh, a, a, a daughter craft. It's, I actually forgot the name of it now. But anyway, it's, it's a, a very fast boat, which we would use to go and sort of meet the migrants as such. Um, and we got out there and it was just, it was pitch darkness. We were moving the light, couldn't see anything. And then we could start hearing these voices, people shouting, help. You know, in Arabic, um, just lots of... And we're like, oh my God, where's it coming from? And then we'd spot a couple of people. Then we saw more people and they were spread out over quite a distance. And at that point, we realized that the boat had obviously flipped over and people had got tossed. We had no idea how many people were out there. Um, and at that point, we, you know, we started... The guys were jumping into the water, the rescue swimmers, rescue divers. And, um, and we were all at that point having to help pull people up people were it was cold it was um january people are wearing multiple layers of clothes so they're obviously weighed down the life jackets were useless a lot of them were fake life jackets so a lot of the the migrants were buying life jackets were often just stuffed with a bit of styrofoam and it actually would weigh them down more than than save them 
and uh, we started. I remember pulling this one woman aboard who was pregnant. There was myself, um, and there was a Sky News TV team were with us, and we all just put the put the cameras down, and the um, the correspondent was helping. We were just trying to pull people in. I remember as uh, one woman, she was had a kid close to her chest. And I was trying to pull her up, or trying to pull the kid up, and um, and I was like, "Why this kid weighs a ton?" I called one of the other guys, "Give me, yeah, help me try and get this child up first. And realised the woman, the the mother had tied the child with a piece of string to her, and uh, so the rescue swimmer jumped in. He was able to cut it. We pulled the kid up, um, but there was two. Uh, then two other children came up, and realised those children were already dead. And a third child came up, so three children end up dying in the in, in this in this tragedy. There was 23 people on the boat, and that was just. I think that's one. Of, that's definitely the most difficult thing I've ever witnessed because the mother didn't. They didn't realise the children were dead, and we took them inside the boat. The uh, doctor on board was trying to revive them, but they had probably either whether hypothermia or whether it was drowning. Um, that these three little ba- babies basically had you know had, had died. Um, and I, th- I remember when we were lifting them on onto the boat, we we they put them uh, on on the deck and sort of covered them up, and they we brought the two mothers out, and it was just I think it was one of those awful things I've ever seen in my life is to you know to see a mother with with two of her you know her two children. She one one mother lost two children, and I, I don't think that is anything that'll ever leave me. You know, it's just. You, know, you as photographers, we're supposed to say, well, we've got to say distance and stuff. You can't, you're a human being. And, and I think if you lose your humanity as a photographer, then your, your, your pictures will, will fail, I think. You made a decision um, to start making portraits of the people once they'd got aboard the mothership, if we can call it that, which I thought was 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 interesting because you've got people that have that have just, just come aboard, they're cold, they're frightened, they, they're disorientated. Um, yet you were making portraits. Yeah, the, the portraits sort of came about because, I, again, I, I wanted to try and individualise people. You know, what was happening was I was, I was creating images with, with a lot of people in there and there's a lot of things happening. Um, and and I, I really wanted people to get a sense of, of them as individuals, as as, as as regular people, you know. Um, and I... To make the portraits was really difficult because every square meter of the boat had either some sort of bit of technical equipment on there or whatever. But I had a little bit of wall. It was about, I would say it was about, I don't know, three and a half feet wide. It was a white wall. And I could basically squeeze between a couple of pipes, put my camera between the pipes and get someone to stand against the wall. And at first I just often did it with the the kids because I felt they needed to be distracted. Um, You know, it's, it was, it's really harrowing. You know, these kids have been through so much, not just from being on the boat from, you know, for for many, many hours, um, but also what they've gone through on the, on the Libyan side, which was just horrific. And so it was a fun way of sort of distracting them. um, And then, you know, I found that other people wanted to have their pictures taken, and I, and I think people really got the sense of of they were they were really they really like someone taking an interest in them. You know, I think from all what they'd gone through, crossing through the desert or whatever they'd come through from their home countries, um, and then being at sea, they'd just been you know they've been treated ab- abysmally, and and I think they liked the idea that someone, another human being, was taking an interest in them as an individual, and I think that's that. 
as I was making the portraits, more people were coming forward, going, "Yes, I want, I want to do my picture. I want to, you know, I want to tell you my story, my name." And um, and I think I did about 150 altogether of them. And I, I, I my, unfortunately, they changed the configuration of the boat on one of the later missions, and my little bit of white wall ended up having a big uh, axe pinned to the wall so I couldn't use it that was the end of that my thanks to Jason Florio this week and if you go to floriophoto.com certainly at the time of recording this podcast Destination Europe is the first tab you'll find on Jason's site and there are a number of photographs from his time spent on the search and rescue ship and the outboards from 2015 and 2016 there's also a film on his motion menu tab called Fishers of Men which really explains more about the incredible women and men who saw that helping these people was far more favourable than bemoaning the fact in their eyes that there was. And I suppose it's, it's apt at this time of the year to say no more room at the inn. That film, by the way, is, uh, is really for adult eyes only, I'd say. And uh, over on my Breathe Pictures podcast, you can hear a fuller account of Jason's work as a photographer. Some of it harrowing, yes, but but also a lighter side. The stories of hope, too. And thank you for some of the super suggestions you're throwing our way for photographers you would like to hear on this podcast. I've begun mailing and contacting, so uh, a thankful hands-clasped emoji. How do you spell that word, Kev? To those who put tap to keyboard on that one. Onwards, Kev. Okay, so back to the questions. This one's from Thomas Wilde, and he says, here's a left-field question. I don't think it's been tackled before. Uh, Last week, I was unfortunate enough to be photographing at a track event at an indoor stadium, and I had two lenses lifted from my camera bag as it lay in what I thought was a safe place. Oh, dear. Now, CCTV threw nothing up, and so I'm left trying to get my money back from the insurance company, who say the bag was neither secure or in view of me. Do I simply lick my wounds and do battle with or do battle with my bank account? Uh, do you keep going with the insurance company? What do you do to keep your gear safe at the wedding venues you visit? So I'm so sorry to hear you've, you've lost mm. that kit. Um, God, dear, that's so annoying, isn't it? It's horrible. And, and in fact, um, I'm not going to mention names, but somebody who was returning from the ex-weddings conference had uh, their bag taken on a train, which had camera gear, laptops, mm. everything in it. It was a whole bag, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's oh. desperately sad, desperately sad. Well, the interesting thing, I think, about this, this question from Thomas is that mm. the insurance company have made this, this claim that the bag was neither secure or in view. Well, the, yes, the insurance policies do actually state that it has to be somewhere that, um, you know, you can't just leave a bag on the street and expect it to be there two seconds later. And, and effectively, no. that's, what, that's what they're saying. You know, you're in a stadium and, um, and if, you, if, you're, if you can't see this bag, then you're not really in, in control of, of its security. You've not, you've not taken proper diligent steps to make sure that it's it's, yeah, it's but, safe that's but, what they're saying isn't well it? of course and insurance companies will do their level best to 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 not pay up but but where do you draw a line on that i mean he doesn't say thomas doesn't actually say where in the stadium neither secure in view of me you can't possibly expect a photographer to to have the camera bag secure and in view of them especially like at weddings or you know racing See, weddings or are the hardest place to, to really keep her because if you carry a lot of gear sooner or later you're going to have to put that you can't lug that bag around all day long in your eyesight all the time wasn't it um, um, a friend of yours oh and I'm trying to remember his name um, oh, super super photographer we'd love to have him as an interview on the show um, 
it once appeared at the Jeff Askoff um, thing because um, because Busink couldn't turn up because there was the Icelandic thing. Oh, Edmund Terracopian. Uh, Edmund Terracopian, that was it. Mm. Uh, he uh, he actually talks about how he pra- practically sort of straps things to lampposts and and double locks them. And, I, and all that kind I of think stuff. it's very different if you're working in the streets, absolutely. And he's a he's a he's a job in photojournalist. Yeah. Um, things like this, it's a troublesome thought, isn't it? Because I. I'm probably a little bit lax in yeah. at weddings. I, I typically, I, I know I am. I, I typically look at the. I do. I do consciously think about the environment, yeah. and I do think you know. Okay, I, everybody here is you know is here for the right reason and stuff. And um, generally, I will stick my bag in. I'll say to the wedding planner or organizer, you know, is there somewhere I could put my bag? Um, and usually, there's a cupboard, or it's you know, it's 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 on inside yeah. the, the kitchen or something like that. But then, what happens if somebody in the kitchen steals it, or yeah. what happens if uh, you know? So you never know who's there. No, I mean, I, I got into a habit of thinking, right, okay, we're in the warmth of a lovely barn environment here. Um, I could probably stick it in the corner over there near the push chairs that have just been shoved in the corner. It's lovely here. They're all here. They're all here for each other. Nothing's going to go on, but it could. And and in fact. It did um, for an assistant of mine not so long ago in London at a really lovely plush venue. She put down her... She was second shooting, and um, she put down the cards. I think we might have mentioned this before. Mm. And um, cards. and turned to me at one stage and said, have you seen my uh, my card wallet? And I said, mm, no. I was thinking, is it not in the bag? No, 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 I left it there next to the bag. And somebody had come along and, and thought, oh, there's a wallet, I think, and... Just, mm. just because it mean, wasn't, didn't it look like a purse? It looked like a purse. I mean, yeah. what what they did with that wallet afterwards is a, you know, they probably well, threw it in a bin when they found out there were memory cards in there. They realised it was it was it was actually more important than that. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, there will be some photographers out there that will will probably email us and say, well, I take a penny case and it's totally locked, padlocked, and I padlock that padlock to the to the chair, and I cha- that padlock the chair is then padlocked to the table, and the table is padlocked to me, <laughs> and I'm padlocked to my camera. <laughs> yes. Um, and the left you know, bone's connected to yeah, but you know, ultimately, I think pff, it's tough, isn't that you? You know, you just hope it never happens, of course. And I think for when I'm trying to get my head around this, this not in view of me thing. You know, you can't at a wedding, you can't. Simple as that. And I know lots of people have made claims from weddings, so I'm hoping that that you know the insurance companies would be would pre- be pretty lenient in that respect. Yeah, a sports venue very different I would imagine because you're probably looking at 20-30,000 people there rather than people yeah. at, I guess at a wedding certainly if you're doing street photography and stuff like that I never leave my bag um, sometime, even if I'm having a coffee in London and I've got a substantial amount of kit in my camera bag I'll put the ca- the bag under my chair but I'll wrap the strap around my foot mm. so if anybody does try and snatch the bag I'll go with it <laughs> they'll throw you away keep the equipment it'd be quite comical <laughs> as my uh, cafe latte goes flying up in the air in slow yeah, motion a little mention here for what well, sounds like advertise, we've advertised Vir- what do we do we did Virgin Google. and we, we did Google um, Think Tank uh, camera bags I use Think Tank and um, they uh, they all come well the ones I've got anyway I'm, I'm assuming that they all come with this have uh, got these uh, wire um, actually uh, it's sort of plumbed into the whole bag. You can't remove this wire, and it's one of those ones you can't cut really easily, mm. unless like, you're carrying around wire like Ken- cutters. And- I think they're called Kensington locks, aren't they? Kensington cables. I think yeah. so. And so these cables, the they're, they're well. attached to these bags, and I use those all the time now. And I use them actually since the um, I had that issue in London with the assistant who had her 
who had her car wallet stolen. So yeah. I, I, I often find my bag gets moved by the the planners or the vendors or yeah. you know the people who are moving the tables around or whatever. And I'm like, don't you hate that when you leave the lid slightly open because you think, well, I'm going to go back to that in a second. And somebody's moved it because I haven't realised <laughs> that the lid's not zipped yeah. up. Everything's fallen out. But Touchwood, Touchwood, it won't happen to yeah. uh, to you again, Thomas, for a start, and, and uh, nobody else. You. Uh, Nick Leach, thank you for your question. Hey, Kevin Neal, I fell in love with the original X100, now have the X100F and the X-T3. I know, Kev, you said you take raw uh, stroke colour images and then convert to black and white. I find this difficult, as so I think I take pictures in colour, uh, different pictures in colour, rather, than I do in black and white. Now, generally, I always shoot black and white. Do you look for different things when taking the picture, knowing you'll make it a black and white image? Would love to have come to the conference in Bath, but from Sydney, the commute is terrible. Love your work, Nick Leach, Sydney, Australia. So do you look for different things, Kev, when taking the picture, knowing you're going to make it a black and white image? You see, the whole thing was, when you look through that EVF, mm. it's black and white, isn't it? Yeah, but then, uh, you know, it depends what style you're shooting. You know, if I was a landscape photographer, I probably mm. wouldn't do that. Or if I was shooting, I don't know, flowers or perhaps even portraits you know but i think for the the type of images that i produce you know there's a lot i i i, I depend yeah. on the light and shadow stuff so yeah it's not it's not one model fits all for sure no. um i just find it helps me a lot when i'm looking for the light and the shadows okay right your question kev quite an interesting question really from paul wright and he says hi guys uh i don't think this topic is my question wasn't interesting is no, that no, what yours it was no no, no. Yeah. it's it's uh it, this has a wedding tinge to it well, but actually moment, i thought you were suggesting my was don't be rude exactly <laughs> i don't think this topic has been discussed on previous shows so we'd like to get your views please i shot a wedding for the first time for a friend last year and it was only during the editing phase that i noticed how much facial detail i was getting oh, close up okay. uh, even on an xt1 with this in mind and for subjects of a more mature age i.e me and you neil <laughs> uh this detail can really lead and he's paraphrasing here to blemishes being somewhat highlighted oh mm. So, I've been using Tiffin's Black Pro Mist and Black Satin Filters. Um, and he puts in brackets to help us out. I'm sure other manufacturers provide something similar. Mm-hmm. That can soften them and give them more film, film-like film look. I was wondering how, if you worry about this topic, either during the event or using filters, do you, or perhaps during post-processing. Yeah. Um, now, I'm presuming those filters are screw-on filters, softening filters, right? Yeah, I think so. Or you drop them into the, the little tip yeah. and holder that rather you can than buy. rather than a like a, a software filter, yeah. like an Instagram filter. Yeah. Well, yes, he's, he's absolutely for portraits and close up stuff like that. It's true that the higher the resolution of the camera, the more detail and definition you're going to see. Um, that's why, like on 4K TVs, all of the presenters hated 4K yeah, TVs, didn't they? Because yeah. it showed off all this. Well, HD does the same thing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't do anything about it particularly but then i rarely get that close uh, i very occasionally because i had quite a bit of contrast in my images but very occasionally i look at an image and i think yeah that that's that looks a little bit too much so mm. i will sometimes reverse the clarity slider just to make oh, it softer. Do you? yeah okay. so i don't use any i'm not putting any filters or anything like that at the time of shooting it's it's just totally in post-production bung a load of grain in to, to to help soften an image no i just use that reverse reverse clarity right okay but, do, but do you ever not put something- grain, grain in um no not really i i because I, I because i use available light so a lot of my images are quite high iso anyway so the right. grain is natural yeah uh, so i don't typically add grain to images that sort of covers a question tim bender was uh was was um 
had sent in. So, Tim, there's there's the answer for the the grain question that you sent in a couple of weeks or months ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah. All right. So there you go, Clarity. I'm, I'm, the filters and stuff. No, I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't spend time doing that. Software. Yes. Shenny Shenny Huimon from Massachusetts. Uh, just started listening to the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Love it. Very motivational. Awesome. Awesome. Did you just use awesome? All right. We'll let you off. So I currently own an XT2 that I use for street travel and personal stuff, and for weddings I use my Nikon system. I've been wanting to jump over to the Fuji system, but uh, uh, I've been having a bit of a tough time with autofocus. Any tips on how to use the uh, the AF? I know it works differently um, in each camera, but I was wondering if you could shine some light on what you do. How do you approach it? What uh, kind of settings do you use? Also, I heard that the XT3 autofocus is better than that on the XT2. That's true. Uh, do you feel though it's it's a big difference? Yeah. <laughs> In a word. Yeah. There we go. Next question. <laughs> uh, so the rest of that question, yes, the well, autofocus. Some tips is, really is, on autofocus. Well, um, I'm currently using XT2. Was that they were currently using yes. XT2? Yeah. Yes. So um, I would I would strongly consider looking at back button focusing using the AF lock button rather than the um, top button, the standard shutter button. Um, that speeds things up. You can also check your um, uh, the release priority in this in the menu. Um, oh, this came up funnily enough in the in the Facebook group, didn't it? I think it's somebody had uh, was having difficulties with. Yeah, focus. Yeah. So I would always set for single shot, for AFS, I would set my release priority to focus. And for AFC, I would set it to um, release. So essentially, you're you're insisting the camera won't take a picture until it's locked focus in single shot, whereas in continuous, its priority is more about kind of making sure that the pictures are taken rather than if you're doing a, a burst of 15 pictures, it's not going to stop every single Does that mean you image. might get a load around a focus? No, you will, you will more than likely have a, a little bit of uh, hesitation at the beginning while it, while it grabs focus. Yeah. If it's, if it's yeah. a subject it can grab focus on. Yeah. Other than that, I'll be fine. So that kind of stuff, look at the back button focusing. Uh, if you do use continuous focus, obviously have a look at the, um, the different continuous focus um, well, I don't know what they call them, Pre- um, presets, parameters. Uh, you can have um, uh, one set up for kind of fast-moving subjects, subjects that are appearing in the frame quickly, all that kind of stuff. Um, just experiment, I guess. But back button focusing is usually the answer to most people's woes. Thank you for your question. Do you have one more? I think we've got time for one more, and then I want to talk about the number 52. Hi, Kevin and Neil. This is from uh, Marius Peter. I think we spoke to Marius before, haven't we? Yeah, I think so. Um, as, You're very welcome. You can send course, me more than yes, one. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. As you know, here in the US, documentary wedding photography doesn't have such a big market as it does in the EU and, e- and UK. <laughs> See, he's, he's look, he's separating out the EU and UK now. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> he did We've put, not gone yet. He did put uh, a joke in brackets. Uh, yeah. Bless him. <laughs> now I, want I got to, rid of the Brexit means Brexit jingles. Yeah, because so. we don't know. That's yeah. why. Uh, now I want to start doing weddings again, but I really want to approach the documentary style. People here don't really want or even understand that style my dilemma here is how do i defend myself in front of these couples <laughs> when i propose this style <laughs> what arguments besides real and pure memory should i give how should we the u.s educate the clients here thank you kudgwa kudgwa oh cut k-u-t-g-w kudgwa what do you think that stands for k-u-t-g-w um could um i have no idea keep up the good work oh very good Cut- we will quite like that uh so over to you americans imagine you've just moved to america (laughs) 
uh, how would you market yourself? Well, I, I thought the documentary uh, genre was growing somewhat in America. I thought, but clearly I'm wrong. I, I, I thought I thought there was more of an understanding for documentary weddings than there was before. Um, mm, well, maybe not. I don't know. I, I think... Um, as, as proved by, you know... Uh, the fact that we seem to see quite a lot of it on on uh, Instagram these days from from, from the states I, that is. You know what? I think there's a distinct difference between documentary in inverted commas and documentary not in inverted commas. Right. So um, no, I'm not. I'm not kind of saying that this is true for everybody. Uh, and I know uh, you know there are there are lots of very good authentic documentary wedding photographers in the states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. There is a there is definitely a lot also that uh, stage it, you know, and natural class natural candid documentary wedding photography. Uh, so the client comes, yeah, we'll do, uh, you know, we'll we'll set up all of these shots to make you look like you're laughing and having a great time, etc. And it's just staged, and and perhaps the message in America is that that's the best way to do it, and perhaps it is. I, I don't know. Who am I to say it's not? But I think that there is a, a little bit of a mixed message there in in that. But but also you have to remember in America, um, a vast majority of America has beautiful either oceans or mountains or scenery they've got space they've got you know all of that kind of stuff and so uh you know traditionally their weddings will be based around the environment and the uh you know the the the, the land around them so you know if you choose to get married in uh i don't know on a californian beach you're unlikely to want a documentary photographer to just photograph that because you've specifically chosen to go to a beautiful part yeah. of the world for the beach for the mountains for whatever so you probably do want more more um, classical style portraits etc and uh, rightly so and the format's slightly different as well i mean for, for example in the states you have a first glimpse thing uh, which is which is uh, an exceptionally contrived moment uh, again it's not it's not a right or wrong in that but it is isn't it it's, glimpse yeah. do they call it <laughs> Look, I think they call it look. First, it's first look. look, sorry, first, first, first glimpse. glimpse. That's. Can I just see you round the corner? Can oh I, no, that's, that's not it. you. That's your grandma. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, I meant I meant first look, first glimpse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they do, and and but the thing is, I know people who do that. They they allow that to happen, the first glimpse, um, <laughs> but they photograph it documentary style, you know, yeah. rather than oh, set, can set you, it up. Though? Can you? Because the whole thing's. Well, no, they can they can carry on doing their first look or first glimpse. First glimpse. Um, uh, you know, you can <laughs> photograph around the stuff that happens around it without direction you know as long as you're not directing that moment then it then it's in my mind it's documentary anyway i think there might also be something about um look look, i i have said in the past you know when people sit in front of me and said we don't like our photos being taken oh i can't think of anything worse you know we'll stand up in lines for forever and i think maybe there's there's something quite uh quite british about that in that we're not used to going for our thanksgiving portraits every every year yeah and and that we we tend to look back at, at portraiture and and contrived or set up shots as that kind of thing with oh no god such like schools when they used to make me do that at school whereas i think the American market, it, it occurs to me, uh, a, a slightly uh, more open-minded, it seems, to when, it, when it comes to the, those portrait moments. Look, the thing is, in America, how many, how many people in the UK? 60 million? 65, isn't it? Something like that, 65 million. How many people in the United States? And I do not know the answer to this. 400 gazillion. Yes, there's a lot more, put it that way. So there are bound to be people who want this style. It's just a case of finding them. Um, and that comes down to marketing. And and as as, as brutal as it sounds, yeah. it comes down to being honest with 
with your marketing and you know if you if you genuinely want to shoot in a in a in a, in a documentary style you have to shoot in a documentary style and you have to have to only show that on your website and when those clients turn up to your studio and say yeah we really like your pictures but actually we want you know two hours of group shots down on the beach yeah, and all that kind of stuff yeah, you have to yeah. basically say well it's not what I do. no I'm not going to do that. And, you know, it's all, it's fine to obviously to say, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do a couple up, up at the house or whatever. But, you know, if you, because then you just become exactly the same as all the others and Absolutely. what you're trying to do is yeah. differentiate and if you don't have the um uh, you know if you don't have the the willpower to do that, then, um, then you never will and you'll end up just, you know, doing the same as everybody else, which may well be perfectly good and acceptable for you. But, you yeah. know. Education. Yes. Education, education, education. Right, 52. Um, we now have worked out, I think, when that 52nd, that year, that year um, anniversary is coming around. And we've worked out that it's uh, Monday the 17th of February. That will be our one-year anniversary episode. Yes. Oh, isn't that sweet? I near know. Valentine's Day as well. It's very near Aww. Valentine's Day. It seems very appropriate. Yeah. So we, we've got to do something special. We are doing a, a special Christmas edition, which is our nativity play coming up in a few weeks' time. But um, for this one, for, for number 52, we, 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 because we're still in negotiations um, with where the, the brilliant place that we think we're going to put it, so we are we going to loosely... We're going to loosely suggest a couple of things so people can start to think about three weeks and stuff, yeah? Um, not a whole week. No, 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 no not a whole Just week. a couple of hours, guys. A couple of hours. <laughs> so we were looking at um, at either... It's got to be a Saturday, hasn't it? So may, maybe the 1st of Feb as the record, the Saturday 1st of Feb. What do you think? Well, Six Nations starts that weekend. Oh, it can't be the first. No. So it'll have to be during the week then. Well, let's just... We'll, Neil and I will we'll firm up a little bit more on the dates. <laughs> Maybe we should do that, that bit on air. But we are we are looking about doing something uh, about a week or two before, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, a week or two before. We'll, we'll figure something out. We will we'll do a live podcast recording. Um, it's likely to be in London. That's important. Mm, yes. We'll, we'll, I think, fair to say, definitely be in London. Sorry for all those that say it should be in Newcastle, Manchester, yes. Air... Yes. Dundee, yes. Uh, Plymouth, and Indiana. Uh, can't this one can't be? No. Um, Other ones maybe. Correct. And uh, yeah, we'll do something. We'll do a live podcast, and we'll have a bit of a bash, and a, yeah. you know, and a, a little bit of a celebration with our friends. And thank yous. Yeah. We can give you lots of thank yous then in real life. So we're planning. So start to put some 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 time aside in your diary. We'll firm up with a proper date. Yeah. I'm sorry, I threw sort of Saturday at you, thinking I didn't realise that was the start of the. I think I actually might have a wedding that day as well. Yeah. Okay. Well. All right. Uh, thank you. This. Thank you to this week's guest. It's nothing if not planned. Sometimes yeah, is it? well organised. Uh, Jason Florio, and you can hear the full cast recording on on the Breathe Pictures uh, website and uh, podcast. If you've liked this week's show, please take a moment, share it, and we'll consider you legendary material. Apple Podcast reviews. There's some cracking ones coming in. Thank you very very much. If you haven't joined the private Facebook group, now is the time. We're waiting in there to say hello. And thank you for your questions, because as 65 people are about to say... They're the life of the show. 
It all grinds to a stop if you don't furnish us with those burning questions your partners get bored with hearing of a weekend. Send them in via the website address to click at fujicast.co.uk. Music is from Blue Wednesday, and it's the lead up to Christmas. I mean, we're officially now in December, so all the all the television adverts have got cute kids, haven't they? So uh, we thought we should have the the cute kids returning with the with the payoffs here. So here's Kevs. Kevin and Neil have their own websites, but I thought it would be easier to give you one website address with all the links you could possibly ever need. www.futurecast.co.uk forward slash the boys. Yes, sorry, force of habit. Whoops. Yes, we thought one link, one link from now on is all you need. Uh, that page will show you to all our sites. Plus also we're, we're going to build for those that have asked a book club soon. So see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Fujicast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.